Church, as we've been moving forward in our series through the Gospel of Matthew for some time now, I've had my eye on this week's passage. Uh, The reason for that is because this week's passage happens to be one of the most debated and confounding sections in the Bible. Faithful theologians, pastors, interpreters throughout church history and up to our own day have come to very different conclusions about the details of this text that we're looking at today. The passage is Matthew 24. It's known as Jesus' Olivet Discourse. He spoke these words from the Mount of Olives outside Jerusalem. This is Jesus' teaching to the disciples about the end times. This morning we're going to cover the first part of this discourse, but before we do, I want to give two disclaimers this morning. First disclaimer, the Olivet Discourse is not of first importance. The Olivet Discourse is not of first importance. Now let me explain what I mean by that. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4, what is of first importance for the church. He does not say the historical sequence of end times events is of first importance. But he says that Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. The Protestant reformer Martin Luther did not say that the church stands or falls on its doctrine of the tribulation. He said it is the doctrine of justification on which the church stands or falls. And I say this because American Christians, more than at any other time in church history, American Christians have historically divided over detailed end times systems when we should have been unified around our common hope in the return of Christ. Far too often we've allowed our eschatology, our doctrinal position on the end times, to separate us from one another. This morning I'm going to teach Matthew 24 to my best efforts as I understand it after studying it. But if you don't see it exactly the same way, that is okay. We can and we should still enjoy the fullness, the absolute fullness of spiritual unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our interpretation of the details of the Olivet Discourse is not of first importance. Well, that being said, here's the second disclaimer. The Olivet Discourse is not unimportant. It's not unimportant. That's why we're opening it this morning. If American Christians in the past allowed eschatology to be too divisive, I think it's very possible that the pendulum has swung way too far the other way. So that today, we act like these things don't really matter at all. We don't really care to identify ourselves as pre-millennial or post-millennial or all-millennial. We are happy pan-millennialists. It will all pan out in the end. That's true, of course. It, It will definitely all pan out in the end, but that doesn't mean that we can afford to just ignore what the Spirit has revealed to us in the Bible. There are many things that Jesus taught the disciples that we don't know anything about. And yet, the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to preserve the Olivet Discourse for us. Why is that? Because we need it. All Scripture is given to us to instruct us and to encourage us and to help us, which means that we need the Olivet Discourse. It might not be of first importance, but it's definitely not unimportant. And that means we have to do our very best to discern the meaning of what God has spoken to us through this chapter. We need to ask, how does the Olivet Discourse Help us know and follow Jesus Christ. And so with those two disclaimers in mind, let's read it together. 
We're going to read through verse 36 this morning. Listen to God's word, Matthew 24, verses 1 through 36. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved." And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation 
will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. It's impossible to read that passage and not have a dozen questions immediately come to mind. What is the abomination of desolation? What is the great tribulation? What does it mean that some will be taken, some will be left behind? Before we can begin to even try and answer these questions, what we need to do this morning is see that this whole passage begins with a question from Jesus' disciples to Jesus. The first part of this sermon this morning is the disciples' question in verses 1 through 3. Look again at these verses that start this passage and see what they ask. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So here's something we cannot miss as we begin thinking about this passage. Jesus' departure from the temple. Jesus came to the temple when he entered Jerusalem, but the leaders rejected him, and now he leaves the temple. He has just said, your house is left to you desolate. He leaves the temple and he heads up toward the Mount of Olives overlooking the city. This departure from the temple fulfills those words that your house is left to you desolate. When Jesus left the temple, it signified God's judgment on the temple. It signified God's judgment on those people who were rejecting him. That's what sets this whole chapter up. But the disciples haven't quite picked up on what's happening yet. They're, they're leaving the temple, they're walking out of Jerusalem, and as they do, they realize this temple is, is an absolutely magnificent feat of architecture. It's stunning, it's huge, it's magnificent, and as the disciples follow Jesus out, they comment to him on the temple's splendor. This leads Jesus to a stunning declaration in verse 2, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This amazing, huge, grand, beautiful temple is going to be destroyed. Now this would have been absolutely unthinkable to the disciples. Not only because of its grandeur, but because of its glory. The temple was the dwelling place of the God of Israel among his people. The temple was the focal point of Israelite worship. This was the center of life for a faithful Israelite, in the minds of the disciples, if the temple was going to be destroyed, that could only mean one thing, the end of the age. If the temple was going to be destroyed, that could only mean one thing, that the end has come. And this leads to their question in verse 3, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Understand what they're asking. When will these things be? That is, when will the destruction of the temple happen? And second, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? That is, how will we know when it's time for you to finally establish the kingdom? We believe you're the Messiah. When when will the end come? Now try to step into the worldview of the disciples at this time in biblical history. To them, all of these things were going to happen together. They were all part of what the Old Testament prophets called the day of the Lord. The coming of Jesus, the destruction of the temple, the end of the age, the establishment of the kingdom. These were all different aspects of the close of redemptive history, the consummation of all things 
And so their question for Jesus is simple. When will all of this happen? When will these things be? When will the temple be destroyed? And when are you coming back to establish your kingdom? That's the question that sets up this whole chapter. And this brings us to the bulk of our passage today. But before we look at Jesus' answer, let me tell you a story. 1996, near my hometown in Baltimore, Maryland, David and Lisa West were joyfully anticipating the arrival of twin babies. A girl and a boy were on the way. When the due date was about three months off, Lisa went into early labor. Their baby girl came first. They named her Molly. She was born on New Year's Day. Molly, though, would have to wait to meet her brother. After Molly was born, the doctors successfully delayed Lisa's contractions, hoping to give the baby boy as many days to continue to develop in the womb as possible. But amazingly, it wasn't until a full three months later that Molly's twin, Benjamin, was finally born. It's a Guinness World Record. When David and Lisa heard that they're going to have twins, as anyone would, they surely anticipated that they would have arrived together. But in the end, this baby girl and this baby boy, though they were truly twins who belonged to the same pregnancy, they came at surprisingly different times. And I tell you this story because this represents the kind of paradigm shift that Jesus is instilling in his disciples in the things he's about to say. In their minds, the destruction of the temple was an end times event that would coincide with the coming of Christ. And they wanted to know the due date. Jesus' answer, however, is to tell them that though the temple's destruction and his return both are end times events, they will not take place at the same time. They will be like twins who were born apart. The key verses to understand this this morning are verses 34 through 36. The disciples asked in verse 3, when will these things be? And in verses 34 through 36, we see the big picture answer that Jesus gives. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. When will these things be is the question. Here is the big picture answer according to Jesus. The destruction of the temple will take place within this generation but no one knows when my return will take place. The destruction of the temple will take place within this generation, but no one knows when the return of Christ will take place. We know when the temple will be destroyed. Jesus says we know when that's going to happen. It will be before this generation passes away, but no one knows when I'm coming back. And as we'll see next week, therefore you must be ready. That's the big picture answer. And verse 34 is especially crucial to pay attention to. And this is where we will, we will find our footing today. Jesus' words, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. That is such an important verse to understand this chapter. In a moment, we'll look at these things, all these things. But before we do, we need to make sure we feel the full force of what Jesus says here. This generation... This generation. This is referring to the generation that was currently living at this time. 
Jesus is speaking to his disciples around the year AD 30. And they've asked him, when will these things be? And he says, before this generation passes away, these things will take place. This generation will not pass away. He's referring to the disciples' generation, which would continue till about A.D. 70, the year the temple was destroyed. In fact, just a few verses earlier, in Matthew 23, 36, just look back a page, Jesus said something very similar to the scribes and Pharisees. In chapter 23, 36, he said, Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. In that context, just before this chapter, these things referred to their rejection of the people that Jesus would send, their persecution of those that the Christ would send to them. And we know from the book of Acts that that's exactly what happened. It was that generation, it was those scribes and Pharisees, it was those leaders who those things came upon. They were guilty of the blood of all God's people up to Zechariah when they persecuted the apostles and the prophets. It was that generation he was speaking of, not some future generation. He's saying, this, this is going to come upon you, the generation that's alive right now. And Jesus' words in Matthew 24 have the same force. They have the same meaning. This generation refers to the generation of Jesus' disciples. It would be within their generation that all these things would take place. Now the question then is, what are all these things? All these things include everything that Jesus tells them from verse 5 through verse 31. Let's look at these verses briefly. We will not be able to get into every question today, but we're going to look at these things. There's five things that Jesus says will take place before the disciples' generation passes away. First, birth pains will take place before this generation passes away. Birth pains would take place within the disciples' generation. We see this in verses 4 through 8. Jesus tells the disciples, here are things that are going to happen prior to the end. They're like birth pains that come before the baby arrives. And there's three things that Jesus lists in these verses specifically about these birth pains. He says, here's what's going to happen. There will be messianic imposters. There will be people saying, I'm the Christ. Or look, there's the Christ. Messianic imposters will arise. Second, there will be conflict between kingdoms, nation against nation. There will be wars and rumors of wars. And third, there will be natural disasters, famines and earthquakes. He says, these things are going to happen, but don't be alarmed. Don't be led astray. These things have to take place. The end is not yet. In other words, he's saying in the immediate future, these things will happen, but don't be led astray to think that the end has come. This is just the beginning of the end. These are just the birth pains. Birth pains will happen within their generation. Second, persecution and gospel advancement will take place before their generation passes away. Persecution and gospel advancement would take place within the disciples' generation. We see this in verses 9 through 14. Just as Jesus told the scribes and Pharisees in chapter 23 that they would reject and persecute those he sends, now he tells those he's sending they're going to reject and persecute you. However, coinciding with that persecution, look at verse 14. There will be incredible gospel advancement. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now let's think about verse 14 for a minute. There are some who have used this verse to teach 
that Jesus cannot return until every people group has been reached with the gospel. Until that happens, until every people group has been reached, Jesus can't return. He says it right here. They must all hear, and then the end will come. But is that what Jesus is saying? Now, as an aside, we should preach the gospel to every nation far and wide until he comes. But is Jesus saying that until every people group hears, he will not come? I don't think that's what he's saying. First of all, remember, this is something that would take place within the disciples' generation. So if we take that with its full force, this is going to happen within their generation, then we'd have to conclude Jesus was wrong. Right? Because not every people group did hear the gospel within their generation. But of course, he wasn't wrong. We have a a better option, a better way to understand this. In saying that the gospel would be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, Jesus was using general language to describe this reality. The gospel is going to spread to all the Gentile nations of the Roman Empire. The gospel is going to spread to the world, to the nations, to the Gentiles, beyond Israel. It's general language. And we might say, well, how, how can you do that? How can you argue it's general language? He says every nation, right? Well, let me just give you a few other examples to show that this is something that we see in Scripture. The Apostle Paul uses language exactly like this to affirm what Jesus says. Look to the book of Colossians chapter 1. Just keep your place in Matthew 24, but look at Colossians chapter 1 with me. Look carefully at the language that Paul is using. The words he says in these verses. Colossians 1 verse 6. He's talking to the Colossian church about their faith in the gospel. And he says that the gospel has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. That's the same exact language that Jesus used. In the whole world, it's bearing fruit and increasing. Now, did Paul mean to say that the gospel had actually gone to every corner of the earth and was bearing fruit and increasing everywhere? No, of course not. Of course not. And yet, Paul could affirm it's gone everywhere. It has spread far and wide. He says it even stronger at the end of the chapter. Look at verse 23. He calls them to continue in the gospel, to not shift from it. And he says, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Literally, which has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, does Paul mean to say that every single person in the world had heard the gospel? No, of course not. He's saying the gospel has spread far and wide. The gospel has gone out to the world. Paul wasn't intending to affirm that there were no places left to take the gospel or that there was no one left who needed to hear the gospel. He was affirming what Jesus said would happen in Matthew 24. In the midst of intense persecution, the gospel was advancing throughout the nations, throughout the Gentile world. Jesus says at the end of verse 14, then the end will come. Then the end will come. And so here we need to ask, what does Jesus mean by the end? He means, to use our illustration from earlier, the first twin is going to be born. This leads us to the third thing that will happen. The appearance of the abomination of desolation. The appearance of the abomination of desolation would take place within the disciples' generation. 
We see this in verse 15. Jesus says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Matthew's the one who inserts, let the reader understand. Of course, because Jesus was speaking, not writing. Matthew says, make sure you understand what Jesus is saying here. He's given us a cue as to what Jesus is talking about. The prophet Daniel predicted what became known as the abomination of desolation. It came to pass in 168 BC, the Syrian general Antiochus Epiphanes came to Jerusalem. He slaughtered thousands of Israelites and then he sacrificed a pig in the temple to the Greek god of Zeus. This was the abomination of desolation. But Jesus is saying here that what happened then is going to happen again. The abomination of desolation has happened, but it's going to happen again. It's still to come, and it would come in A.D. 70 when the Roman general Titus invaded Jerusalem, and he likewise offered unclean sacrifices to false gods in the temple. Jesus tells the disciples ahead of time, when you see that happening, when the abomination of desolation appears again, then you know, then you know that these things are, the end is coming. This leads to the fourth event. A great tribulation will take place within the disciples' generation. A great tribulation was going to take place within that generation. We see this in verses 16 through 22. Whatever you may have heard about the tribulation in the past. I want to invite you this morning to set aside that for a moment and think about the specific things Jesus says to his disciples in these verses about an event that he says would happen within their generation. It says, to the disciples, when they see the abomination of desolation, when they see Titus in the temple offering defiled sacrifices, he says, flee to the mountains, run away from Jerusalem. Don't try to bring anything with you. Pray that it's not in winter. Pray that it's not on the Sabbath. He gives detailed instructions to residents of Jerusalem to get away from the city as fast as they can. Why? Verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Based on that context, I believe that the great tribulation Jesus is referring to here was the fall of Jerusalem. According to Josephus, the Jewish historian, during the Roman siege of Jerusalem, more than one million Jews were killed, and more than 100,000 were taken away as slaves. It was a period of un unprecedented distress and suffering in the city of Jerusalem. It was, as Jesus says, a time of great tribulation, a time of terrible trouble, such that if those days had not been cut off, no human being would have been saved. And yet, because of God's merciful hand, for the sake of his people, the tribulation did come to an end. And this leads to the final thing Jesus says would happen within the disciples' generation. The sign of the Son of Man. The sign of the Son of Man would appear before the disciples' generation passed away. Now of all the things that Jesus tells the disciples would happen within their generation, this last one is the most difficult for us to understand. Look again at verses 23 to 28. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. 
Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So first, Jesus once again warns that there will be messianic imposters and there will be false prophets who claim that the Messiah has come in some invisible, secret way. He's, they're saying he's, he's, he's out in the wilderness. He's, he's in the inner rooms. He's hiding. Go find him. Jesus says, don't believe a word of it. When I return, it will be like a lightning strike that lights up the whole sky. My return will not be secret. It will be public. When I return, no one's going to miss it. That's what he says. So let me say that again. When Jesus returns someday, it will be a public, visible, global event that lights up the whole sky. This leads us then to verses 29 through 31. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to another. Now, when we read that initially, it seems obvious that Jesus is here describing that very same public, visible, global return he just spoke about. We have the dissolution of heavenly bodies. We have the tribes of the earth seeing the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven in power and glory. We have the angels gathering God's elect from the four corners of the earth. Surely this is a description of Christ's return. Surely this is telling us about the blessed hope of Christ's second coming. Listen, that is definitely how we would understand these verses, if not for two things in the context. First, once again, Jesus says that this is one of the things that would happen within the disciples' generation. This comes before that statement. All these things will take place before this generation passes away. And second, Jesus says that this would happen immediately after the tribulation of those days, which we just saw refers to the fall of Jerusalem. So how could this be describing the second coming of Christ if it was going to happen within their generation and immediately after the tribulation? This is why you'll find that some interpreters have tried to argue that generation must mean something different than generation. It just seems like an insurmountable obstacle. It can't mean generation because obviously this hasn't happened yet. But we don't need to change the meaning of generation to make sense of what Jesus is teaching here. We can affirm that this would happen and did happen within the disciples' generation. Remember how this passage began. Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple. You've got to keep that in mind. That's what starts this whole thing off. When will these things be? Well, here we have the answer. He's, he's told them things leading up to when that would happen. But here we have the answer. These verses are not describing the second coming of Christ to judge this world and save all who believe, which Andrew preached just a few weeks ago. These verses aren't describing that. These verses are describing Christ's coming in judgment through the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. These verses are describing Christ's coming in judgment through the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. This is when it would happen. Now, observe a few things with me to help make sense of that interpretation. First, let's look at the language of verse 29. The language that Jesus uses of the disillusion of heavenly bodies. In scripture, that is the language of judgment. That is always seen as the language of judgment. Listen to how Isaiah described God's coming judgment on Babylon in Isaiah 13. 
For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. That was God telling Babylon, I'm coming to judge you. And he used the language of the disillusion of heavenly bodies to do it. Ezekiel 32, same language used to describe God's judgment on Egypt. When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a dark cloud. The moon will not give its light. Same language used to describe God's judgment on Egypt. Now just as the prophets used the language of heavenly catastrophe to describe God's judgment on these Gentile nations and cities, so now, amazingly, Jesus uses that language to describe God's judgment on the holy city of Jerusalem. God's judgment on his people. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. It's the language of judgment. Second, Verse 31, the language of the angels gathering God's elect from the four corners of the earth. That that definitely sounds like it's describing the end, but it doesn't necessarily need to be taken that way. It's not necessarily describing that final ingathering of all of God's people at the return of Christ. The word translated angel is the same word that also means messenger. Angel and messenger are the same word in Greek in different passages. Take them different ways based on how you interpret the context. But if messenger is the meaning of the word, then Jesus is saying, and he will send his messengers out with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. In other words, this verse could be describing to us the proclamation of the gospel to every corner of the earth, to every tribe, people, and nation. This verse could be describing the work of global missions that the church would carry out post eighty seventy saying that the gospel's going to go forth. He's going to send his messengers out to all corners of the earth and gather God's elect, which is exactly what happens when someone comes to Christ. But the, the, big, the big question is, is verse 30, isn't it? What about the language of the coming of the Son of Man in great power and glory? How could that possibly refer to anything but his second coming? Well, this is not the first time that Jesus had said something like this. Turn back to Matthew chapter 10, verse 23. Matthew 10, 23. Matthew 10 is Jesus sending his disciples out to the towns of Israel. And as Jesus described their mission that would unfold to Israel after his resurrection and ascension, he said to them in 10, 23, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, there will not, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So in chapter 10, verse 23, Jesus told the disciples that there would be a coming of Christ that was going to happen before all the towns of Israel could be reached. Either we have to redefine what Israel means there, or we understand that there was going to be a coming that was not the coming that we think about in the second coming of Christ. Look also at Matthew 16, verse 28. Jesus said to the disciples, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Again, there was a coming of Christ that was going to happen while some of the disciples were still alive. Before they passed away, they would see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Taken together, all three passages, Matthew 10, 23, Matthew 16, 28, and here Matthew 24, Christ's coming refers to his coming in judgment through destruction of the temple. 
Jesus was rejected and he left the temple in judgment. And Jesus would come in judgment against that temple before that generation passed away. Jesus says that this is the sign of the Son of Man. The destruction of the temple would be the sign of the Son of Man. This word sign leads us to the final thing we need to see this morning. Why does the destruction of the temple matter today to us? What did the destruction of the temple signify? Everything we've looked at this morning has led up to that moment. You know, when I was younger, I didn't make much of the fact that Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple. To me, it was just another example of Jesus' omniscience. It was something that he knew was going to happen, and by saying it, we, we have another, another clue that he's God. But it would just be like him telling us who's going to win the Super Bowl next week. <laughs> you know? Jesus knows that. He could have told us. It would be an example of his omniscience. And that, that's all I really thought about it, was Jesus knew that was going to happen ahead of time. But I hope that we can see this morning that the destruction of the temple was not just something that Jesus knew would happen. The destruction of the temple was an act of Jesus that signified truth about Jesus. What did it signify? In what ways did the temple and its destruction function as the sign of the Son of Man? There's two things that matter for us today that we need to see from all of this church. First, the destruction of the temple signified that Jesus truly is the fulfillment. The destruction of the temple signified that Jesus truly is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. Think about it, church. The temple is where the glory of God dwelt in the Old Testament. The destruction of the temple signified that God's glory now dwells uniquely in Jesus Christ. The temple is where priests served as mediators between God and his people. The destruction of that temple signified that Jesus is now the one mediator between God and man. The temple is where sacrifices were offered to atone for sin. The destruction of the temple signified that Jesus is the true and final once-for-all sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. When the temple was destroyed, God was signifying to his people that their house was desolate, that Jesus had replaced the temple and all that went on in the temple. The destruction of the temple signifies to us today that Jesus is the fulfillment. He's truly the only way of salvation. And therefore, the destruction of the temple tells us that we should put all our trust in Jesus alone. It tells us that he is the only way, that he is the priest, he is the sacrifice, he is the meeting place with God. It's all in Jesus. It's not in the temple anymore. Let's put all our trust in him alone this morning. And second, the destruction of the temple signifies that Jesus really is coming soon. It signifies that Jesus truly is coming soon. You know, once David and Lisa West gave birth to their daughter Molly, there was no doubt about it, Benjamin was coming soon. And in the same way, the end times event of the destruction of the temple signifies to us the end times event of Christ's second coming. They do belong together. They just didn't come at the same time. But Christ's second coming is going to happen soon. If the first twin has been born, then we know the second one is on its way. This is why Jesus says in verse 36, No one knows the day or the hour, but that day will surely come and you must be ready. The destruction of the temple signifies to us today that Christ really is coming soon. And therefore we should put all our hope in him alone. 
It is our blessed hope. He is coming again. Church, look again at Jesus' words in verses 32 to 35. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. If we adjust Jesus' metaphor here to fit into life here in the south, here's what he's saying. When pollen coats the land, when everything outside has that nice sheen of yellow on it, you know that summer is near. And in the same way, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. And church, here's the thing. All these things have happened. All these things have happened. The birth pains, the advancement of the gospel through persecution, the abomination of desolation, the tribulation, the destruction of the temple, they've all happened. And what this means is that he's near. It means that he's at the very gates. It means that we are waiting on one final thing, the last event, the consummation of redemptive history. The last thing we're waiting for is the return of Christ, and it could happen today. There's nothing left. There's nothing left to happen, which means that whatever might be happening in your life today, whatever troubles and trials you're facing, know this, Jesus is at the very gates. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his promise will not pass away. He is coming soon, and the one who endures to the end will be saved. This morning, let's encourage each other as we respond through song that we need to fix our eyes on his soon return, knowing that he is coming soon, and this is the blessed hope that we share. Our Father, I pray that you would work these words into our hearts, as Tim put earlier, make them come alive in us, Lord. Um, Lord, lead us right now to rejoice in the gospel, which is of first importance. Jesus, you are the fulfillment of every shadow in the scriptures. You are the substance. Salvation is in you alone. And you are a hope. You are coming again. We pray that you would affirm and assure our hearts of these things and help us to fix our eyes on you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand, church.